Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Going There, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. This season of Going There is brought to you by the fine folks at the Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson, who never stop working to create a future where disease is a thing of the past. In honor of July being BIPOC Mental Health Month, This month's episodes will center around the voices and experiences of artists of color. Today, we are talking with singer-songwriter Bartiz Strange. Bartiz exploded on the music scene in 2020 with his debut album, Live Forever, which was described as, quote, one of the most fascinating and affecting debuts of the year. That created such buzz for Bartiz, and he kept that buzz going with his 2022 album, Farm to Table, which just recently dropped. One review of the album said, quote, Strange's undeniable talent and versatility have resulted in one of 2022's most audacious albums, one that whirls through ideas while exploding preconceptions. Bartiz is now on an international tour, so check him out at a show near you. You can find all of Bartiz's music, tour info, and updates at bartizstrange.com. Now, on the Going There podcast, we have the tough conversations to address important issues so we can learn from each other, challenge the stigma of mental illness, and get the care we need. And one of the most challenging issues that we often face on our mental health journey is when we experience invalidation of our experience. Invalidation refers to when the people in our lives or in the world do not accept or acknowledge our experience as being quote-unquote real. We are told that our thoughts, feelings, or perspectives are somehow irrational or distorted, that we are not seeing the world in an accurate way. This invalidation can be damaging in so many ways. First, it makes us feel disconnected from the people around us. We don't necessarily need the people in our lives to agree with us, but it's difficult to feel connected to people who simply dismiss our experience and treat us like we're irrational. Second, invalidation may also lead us to disconnect from ourselves. This comes about when we feel like there is something wrong in this world, or we feel depressed or anxious, and rather than validate our experience and try to understand it and cope, we try to avoid or suppress our thoughts and feelings. This can typically make us feel worse rather than better as we become confused and no longer grounded in our own sense of reality. We spend all of our time struggling with what feels real and not on coping with our experience. Finally, when we are being invalidated, we are susceptible to gaslighting, whereby we are not only told that our experience is invalid, but also that we must accept someone else's experience as truth. This can be even more devastating as other people's truth often doesn't fit with our experience and we can feel even more isolated and lost. In our discussion, Bartis talks about experiencing invalidation in two particular parts of his life. The first was when he observed or experienced racism. Bartis discussed how he often felt that people in his life would either directly or inadvertently invalidate his experience of racism. 
They would say that he'd be fine or that he was safe when he felt very much otherwise. This invalidation didn't reassure him. It made him feel less safe and more frightened. The second was in relation to his career. Bartiz had developed a successful career in communications, and when he yearned to choose a different path that allowed him to more directly explore and express himself through music, he struggled with being told that this was not a valid choice, that he should stay in the safe and more traditional path. During our conversation, Bartiz shares different ways that he's learned to cope with invalidation so that he can explore and examine his feelings and receive the validation he needs for his mental health journey. Now, as we progress through this season of Going There, our goal is to bring you, the audience, further into the conversation. On the Consequence website and wherever you find these episodes, you'll also find a short questionnaire. We'd love to hear your feedback, questions that you have that have been sparked by our conversations with these incredible artists, and topics you'd love to see addressed. We incorporate these responses into episodes, as well as a monthly column called Ask Dr. Mike on the Consequence website. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. These help other folks find their way into the conversation so they can go there with us. So let's go there and listen to what Bartiz has to say. Hey, Bartiz, welcome to Going There. So let's get right into it. You and I talked a little bit before the podcast about a song that you're working on right now that feels representative of your mental health journey. Yeah. Um, there's a song on the next album called Escape the Circus, or This Circus. And it's kind of a song about how the first lines of the song are, um, I want to start a war, but it would end on the news. Live at six, another case of Whitey up on the moon. It really feels like they're leaving soon. And I, I think about like so many things happening all around the world make you feel so much and make you feel so overwhelmed, you know, like you can't really fix anything, you know, you can't save any, anyone, you know, um, the smartest people in the world can't. And we just, we're always like bombarded with all this information of how things are, are just going south in every aspect. And then also kind of looking at, I, I felt like as a kid, I always would, I always wanted to go to outer space because I thought, well, at least in outer space, like, there's nothing bad. It's just space. You know, there's no racism. There's no sexism. There's no poverty. It's just space. Um, and how bummed I was when Elon Musk went to space because I was like, dang, you're taking all of this mess from here and bringing it up there. That was supposed to be the safe spot, you know, as Sun Ra would say, space is the place. And so I, I kind of, through, over the course of that song, I kind of look at different things that bother me, like cryptocurrency and Elon Musk going to space and how overwhelming things feel. But at the end of the song, I get to this point where I basically say, like, you know, you can't save the world, but you can save yourself. Like when things feel overwhelming, it's a good chance and a good opportunity to get small. Look at like your immediate world, like yourself, your family, your your dog, your house, like Start fixing things there, like work on your community, because that's ultimately how we can do anything about anything. You know, I think people forget how much control they actually do have, like over themselves and their immediate environment. And um, recognizing that can, I think, save a lot of people a lot of heartache. You know, it's easy to get caught up in all the big stuff, but um, you can do something about the small stuff. So, yeah. You know, one of the things that you're talking about now is what I consider to be the two essentials of mental health. One is that you have to be able to validate, acknowledge, and understand the enormity of what you're feeling. You need that validation, that understanding of what's going on, and then you can move on to some kind of problem solving. And so what you're talking about is basically doing both of those things, the validation and the problem solving. 
And maybe one of the things we can talk about are things that you've seen in the world where you haven't received that kind of validation. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, shootings, <laughs> you know, school shootings, shooting of, you know, black people dying, police shootings, and how residually afraid I am all the time of that, you know, to the point where like if I'm in the mall and I hear a door shut loud, I'm like scared, you know, like and and it's kind of silly, but it's also kind of valid. You know, of course, not every black person that gets pulled over by the police gets killed, but I see it all the time. So uh, it's hard for me to not feel that, you know, (laughs) and at multiple levels, you know. Um, you know, you grow up where, where I grew up, I grew up in Oklahoma where there was a lot of violence, you know, towards like black folks and people of color and queer folks. And, you know, any, you know, it was, it's a violent place. You grew up there and my parents grew up in the South and they reinforced that violence by telling me all the stuff they experienced growing up, you know, and it brings so much truth to this fear that I'm going to get shot and die one way or another. And so, you know, that's something where like, over the years, you kind of get numb to it. You know, you're like, uh, like, I can't be worried about this every day or else I'm not going to get anything done. But on the other side, it's like, this is real. Like, this is something that really impacts my life and my mind and how I move through the world. And I should like, I shouldn't completely ignore that. You know, there's some validity to it, you know? So, yeah. Now, it's interesting because one of the things that you said is the phrase, it, it may sound silly. Yeah. And for where I'm sitting, it, it certainly doesn't sound silly. But I'm wondering if you've experienced people having that reaction to what you're talking about, like it's silly or you're overreacting. Yeah. I mean, it definitely has been said to me before. Um, I think I'm kind of still working through that. Definitely growing up in Oklahoma, where everyone loves, people love guns and they love the police and you know, and when you're like the one black person at an all white school and you're scared of everything, everyone is kind of gaslighting you. You know, you, you're you in a constant state of being gaslit and everyone telling you everything's fine. Like that only happens to bad people or, you know, only bad people, only crazy people do this. You know, but the older I've gotten, the more I've realized, like, that's not true. Like this is happening to people that are not bad people, <laughs> you know, like it's happening to people that look a lot like me, same body type as me. I'm six foot. I weigh 250 pounds. Like um, I'm not a small person. I'm a, my whole life, people, I mean, my parents tell me not to raise my voice. So I don't, so people don't kill me or put me in jail. You know, it's like this, you're always, you know, I just grew up policing myself, like how my, how to move, how, like, where I was late at night, who I was around, like everything about my life was around my, my color and how I was being perceived. So it it was, it created a huge chasm where I was like, everyone is telling me that I'm crazy, but I'm seeing this happen every day, you know? Um, so yeah, yeah, you're right. Can we talk a little bit about not only institutionalized racism, but the gaslighting that goes along with that? Cause that's a very powerful combination. It's tough enough to have to deal with racism alone, but to have to deal with that and then to have your reality being denied, that, that's, that's really a powerfully negative thing that can happen to our mental health. Can you talk about that? Yeah. And, and the toughest part is you're still expected to perform. You, know, like you're, you go to job, your work, they still expect you to run the meeting and you know do the things and act like nothing's going on. Uh, the, 
I rem- uh yes. So what that does over years, I've seen it manifest itself in a lot of ways, but with myself, I I started to just kind of not trust myself. For one, you feel lonely because you think, okay, nobody understands what I'm going through. I'm going through something, but no one's telling me that it exists. And I don't know who to talk to about it, you know? Two, it's like you start to think you're crazy and like you'll never meet people who will be able to identify with you. You you start to question your your instincts, you know? And when bad things happen or when someone is racist or you experience something, you start looking for all these other reasons why it could have happened. But you know why it happened, but no one's validating that for you. Um, I remember when I moved to New York, it was the first time I lived in a place where I was in a majority black area and I got so much validation that it changed who I was. Like event, I became honestly who I am today. Like I was able to like blossom. I I was able to like be in a place where I was comfortable and people agreed with me and I could explore things, um, in a, in a way that I wasn't able to when I was younger because, uh, that, that, uh, environment just wasn't, it didn't exist. Like no one wanted to hear about my, my problems, (laughs) you know? So, yeah. And it's so hard when you don't trust yourself. There's no ground in that case. Yeah. If you're grounded, at least you can say, I know what's going on. I know what's ahead of me. Maybe I can think about a plan. But when the very foundation of your reality is challenged and you have all these stressors, people can just get lost in it and they never really come back because there's something so terrifying about it and so alluring about that numbness that you talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and there's safety in it also. You know, I think it's easier to be numb than to have the questions. And it's sad, you know. I see a lot of people, I know a lot of black people who have had to deal with that and yeah, it, it can manifest itself in a number of ways. Something I think about a lot is, you know, I worked in like the nonprofit space for 10, for 12 years before I started doing music full time. And um, I was working in justice movements, you know, I was doing labor movement, climate movement, you know, I worked in the government for a while as a press secretary for Obama for a little, so I had some jobs and I remember for example, when George Floyd died, everyone's watching this man die on television. Everyone is reacting and they expect me to go to work on an issue that also impacts people's black people disproportionately. And it's like, I remember feeling so disrespected. Like I just watched someone that looks like me just get killed on TV and you're just like, is the meeting at two still happening? And I'm like, how how can you ask me that? You know, it's, it was like, so the gaslighting can also manifest itself in moments like that, where it's like, even people who are like on the right side of the issue, you know, who like, you know, they're like your friends and they're progressives too. Like, they make you feel like you they just, they don't see what you're going through at all. And that makes you feel even more crazy because you're like, I thought I found the people that understand me. And y'all don't understand, you know, so it just doubles down. You're like, what, how do we do anything about this? You know, like, then you kind of get hopeless. You're like, how are we going to fix anything when the people that are supposed to be fixing the things can't even deal with this interaction? You know, this very small interaction. It's wild. And I find one of the toughest things about trying to be an advocate or an ally is, is losing that humbleness or that, you know, that openness. And I'm kind of curious 
when you come across somebody who does that, you know, who's maybe well-intentioned, maybe not, um, and they make some kind of misstep, have you ever done anything that's worked to help bring someone back into that situation and kind of explain to them what they were doing wrong? Hmm. Well, I don't think I had the tools at the time to really deal with that. I, and I, I kind of go back and forth on what to do. I, I, cause I really don't know <laughs> what the right thing to do is. Uh, I, I kind of just let it go. And then if I have an opportunity to address it at another time, I will. But in the moment it's a little too, you know, I, I'm already dealing with enough, you know, I don't want to talk them through this, you know, um, in the past I have said, you know, today's a lot actually for me. I can't really, I can't really do this right now. I'm going to take some time. And, and oftentimes that's enough to make someone think about what they just did, you know? And, um, sometimes they'll reach out and they'll be like, Hey, the work doesn't really matter that much. I'm sorry. Like I shouldn't have, you know, and that's, that's, that's good. But you know, it's a, I don't know the right answer to that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, something that we've talked about on this program before is that privilege to some degree is in part not having to explain those things, to not having to explain your gender, your sexuality, certain issues in terms of racial sensitivity. It's a privilege when people just get it right the first time. And I think that one of the things that happens when people don't have that privilege is it feels like an ongoing stressor to have to over and over and over again just explain yourself. Right. Yeah. That's very true. Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So how are you able to dig yourself out of that? I mean, it just sounds so overwhelming. Um, so for me, honestly, I felt like growing up where I grew up, I had some good things happening, but I knew I had to get out of there. You know, I had to leave Oklahoma and I, I felt like I needed to kind of be in a different environment. I, you know, I, and so I moved to DC and, uh, proved to myself that I could do some things. You know, I got some jobs and I was like, yeah, like I'm a capable person. Like I, you know, I've got some ideas and people want to hear my ideas. So that's good. You know? And, um, as my career kind of blossomed, I hit this point where I kind of just looked at myself and I was like, I don't think I actually like who I'm becoming right now. Like, I, I love that I'm working. I love that I'm making money. Like, I've, I've figured out a way to pay my rent. Like, my bills are good. I've got a girlfriend. You know, it's like, life is okay, but I feel like I'm not happy. And I don't know when I ever was. And I, and I started to think about, like, when was I ever happy? Or have I just been afraid this whole time and reacting to that fear? You know, and so I started thinking about, you know, the thing I've always loved is, is writing and playing music. And I want to just do more of that. And I want to be in an environment where there are more people doing that and people doing that who look like me because I'd never been around artists that look like me, uh, except for my mom, you know. And so I, I moved from D.C. to New York and started playing in bands. And I never was like, oh, I want to be a big musician or oh, I want to make it. I, I just wanted to express myself and and feel like I was around people who were would listen to what I had to say. And I found that community and I just played, you know, I played in everyone's band I could play in country music, hardcore music, jazz, punk bands, rock bands, whatever. And, and, and really fell in love with music production. And it was like every year I would just go a little deeper. 
I would want it a little bit more. And I was still working my full-time job, you know, and I, I really liked my balance. You know, I had my job, I had my girlfriend, and I had my music that I would do every day after I got off work, you know. And all my vacation days I, I spent in studios or going on little weekend tours with my bands, you know. And that was a really fulfilling and happy time in my life. And through that, I was able to kind of like grow. Uh, you know, I, I felt like I was in a safe environment that was very supportive and uh, I, I wasn't everything that had been gaslit to me was now being validated by people who looked like me and by people who didn't, you know, like I was meeting white people who were like a little more forward thinking and black folks who were extremely militant and forward thinking and gay folks and trans folks, people that, you know, I didn't know I identified with as much as I did, you know, uh, it showed me something about myself. And it was beautiful to feel like there was so much more to investigate with myself, you know. And so, you know, through that, I, I kind of built a music career. You know, I started making things that for me, really, music I wanted to hear in the world, but it connected with other people. Um, and then it was able to grow. And I, <laughs> it's funny because, like I said, I never really started making music to, to make money off of it. You know, I, I just wanted to like express myself and, and grow and through that growth and expression, I've been able to make money off of it, which is crazy. But, um, I'm so grateful with how, how that turned out. Cause I definitely did not see it coming and I, uh, yeah, but yeah, that's how it happened. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting when I started graduate school, my advisor said something to me, which I thought was very interesting which was be careful about applying for a grant because the worst thing that can happen is that you might get it. And what he was talking about is that all the enthusiasm, the excitement, you know, that goes into trying to get a grant and do a study is based on things that that's a, that's a more dynamic process. Mm -hmm. And what then happens is that the process of applying for a grant actually keeps you static. Mm -hmm. And so it may seem like a great thing, but it can actually hold you in place for a few years Right. And one of the things that's tough about taking on a life course that you think will please other people or is the thing that you think you should be doing is that it might work. And then you get, in theory, all the benefits of that life that you've been working for, but you're trapped all of a sudden into something that may have not been of your making or may have not been authentically you or at the very least isn't still authentically you. Yeah. I mean, that's how I felt. And uh, I mean, it really hit me when... I mean, there was a point in my younger life where I wanted to be like some people, you know, honestly, I mean, I wanted to be Remy from House of Cards. You know, I was like, I want to be a lobbyist in D.C. I want to make a lot of money. I want to work for all the powerful people. Boom, boom, boom. You know, like that's what I want to do. And then once I got there, I, I looked around and I didn't want to be like anyone I saw, <laughs> you know, like I was like, I actually I am not loving this at all. And I don't. I don't, I don't want this to be my life. And it scared me because I thought I, it was just going to, I was like, oh no, like I'm, I'm it's too late, you know? Um, so I, I, I cut out and ran. I mean, I, I had that job in the administration for like eight months and I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's time to move. <laughs> and, and that's, that's why I moved to New York. Yeah. But I definitely, I was like 25 at the time and I had moved so quickly and everyone around me was telling me I was crazy to quit you know they were like don't don't ruin your life by quitting this job stick it out but i was like 
I don't want to be unhappy anymore. Like I, I, the money isn't worth it anymore. I'm so sick of this, you know? So one thing I'm curious about is that you're talking about two different transitions. One where you escaped racism in Oklahoma and the second one where you escaped feeling trapped in D.C. Now, as of right now, considering all that you've accomplished in your music career, you can look back on that and say, oh, I've been validated by my choices. But how did you make those choices back then, not knowing that you would necessarily be successful? I mean, these are very bold moves. You know, what gave you the strength to be able to make those moves? Um, a little bit of hubris and a little bit of um, and incremental moves, you know, like the, the move from D.C. to New York was a real moment in my life, because at that point I've proved to myself I could make some things happen, you know. Uh, I was like, okay, like I moved from Oklahoma to DC. I didn't know anybody when I got here. I didn't even have a place to live. I lived out of my car for two months. Like I was just figuring it out. And then from internship to job, to job, to big job, to bigger job. Now look, you know, figured it out. So I was telling myself, I was like, you can figure, you can figure this out. You know, um, you did already. And I got a job in New York, which helped me make that transition. So I was like, Okay, like baseline, I have a job. <laughs> I have I have money coming. You know, the bigger move that I think people are kind of they always ask me about is how did I go from having great jobs to doing music full time, and like letting the jobs go, and that was like a seven year process. You know, I I moved to New York just wanting to play in bands. You know, I didn't have any gear or anything, so I bought a guitar joined a couple bands and just played, you know, every year of playing, I would get a little more ambitious. You know, I'd want a little bit more. I'd be like, okay, like I, I want to play, I want to be in like kind of the biggest band in Brooklyn. Like I want to be, I want to play at the big shows. I want to do the thing I've always wanted to do. I think it took me a, many, many years to say that out loud, even to myself that I wanted to be a, a, mus a musician full time. Um, that wasn't something I was able to even say out loud until I was 30. You know, so I was just, you know, playing with my friends and getting to know people and kind of going on this journey in myself of like what I really wanted, you know, out of all of it. And um, over that time, playing with people, making connections, getting better at making music, getting better at recording music, getting better at production, um, I developed a vision. You know, there was something I, I, I could see that I wanted that I felt like I could do. And, um, I went from a five-day work week to a four-day work week to give myself a little bit more time to work on it. Then that turned into a three-day work week, <laughs> you know? And so then I had half the week to just work on music. And and then, you know, eventually my record came out and then I was like, okay, I can, I can phase out of this, you know? So I definitely didn't do the like, I'm quitting my job and doing music. I was just doing both. And then over time, it just kind of went like this, you know? And that's kind of my advice to everyone who like wants to make a change. It's like you can make small changes for a long time. You know, you don't have to like quit your job to write the book. You know, you can just start kind of tinkering at it. You know, it's interesting that you say it that way, because one of the reasons why I personally love talking with musicians about mental health is because, number one, so many musicians have been for many of us the first doorway into thinking about our mental health, because we may not know how we feel, but we know we connect to the music and we know we're feeling something. And sometimes we even go to music at a time of comfort. And also, 
I think what happens when building a musical career is that it's not a guarantee. You know, it in many cases, it feels like there's almost a hopelessness about it. People don't see a path, but people decide that they're going to take these small steps and they're going to just keep building, which is very similar to people's mental health journey. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of wondering for you if you took a similar approach in your mental health journey, like did you feel like you just took it in very small steps or did you try to get it all taken care of at once? Yeah. I mean, the first step was getting a therapist and kind of letting someone else in because <laughs> I, over the years, developed this ethos where I, ever, I had to do it myself. Like, if I'm going to make this, if this is going to happen, I have to make it happen. Like, if I'm going to be successful in D.C., I have to. That's me. I have to do it. If I'm going to make it in music, I have to do it. No one else sees what I see. I need to do it. I need to prove it, you know. And that was cool. Like that, you know, that's one way to live your life. And, you know, that'll get you so far. But eventually you need people like you need help. Everything, you know, you need someone else. And um, getting a therapist and letting them kind of into my life was the first step of many steps to recognizing my patterns recognizing my trauma, recognizing the things that I was kind of numbing myself to were worth addressing to get to a new level of being happy and and at peace with things. Um, it's something I'm still working through now. I still have a therapist, you know, I've had a therapist last five years, um, major, major change in my life. And in a lot of ways that like kind of helped my music, especially now going back to what you were saying about you know, don't apply for the grant because if you get the grant, who you you, you got to do the thing. Like now, like I'm a professional musician. My life is totally different. Like I tour half the year. You know, I'm I'm like I have different problems than I did a year ago. <laughs> and so, um, having someone around who can help me mentally through that transition has been a game changer. And I would be in a lot of trouble right now um, if if I didn't have someone to talk to. I had talked to my therapist therapist this morning you know, just about everything going on around the record and how new it is for me to have so much f attention on my music. And it's a dream come true, but it's also it's something I just never thought would ever happen, you know? So it brings all types of self-doubt and, you know, anxiety and, you know, you don't know if you can do it. Am I good enough? You know, things like that, that over time can add up and, you know, you, 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 uh, you know, that doesn't really serve me anymore at this stage of my life. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, this thing about not knowing, you know, are you, quote unquote, good enough? These questions, a lot of time musicians will report, you know, and, and look, I don't want to compare this to the gaslighting of racism, obviously, but just as a similar process where the reality that you're experiencing as a musician, the evolution that you're going through as a musician may feel very differently than the evolution or the feelings that other people have about your process, about your music. Yeah. And I mean, here's, here's a perfect example. It's like, you know, you, you were even talking about this at the top of the show, you know, your work is extremely buzzy. People have a lot of very positive opinions of you. And on the one hand, you know, that's great. You know, isn't this wonderful, but you may not be feeling that way yeah. about where you're at. You know, your reality may not be matching up with that reality. And yes. so that can be a very confusing experience for artists. Oh, my God. You nailed it right on the head. 
Oh, <laughs> right on. Yes. Yes. That's like literally what I'm going through now where it's like, there are people in my life who were like, yo, you're the next Prince. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> like I'm not probably not, you know, like uh, I'm, I'm just Bartice Cox, you know, like I, I make music here in my basement. I love that. You know, like I want to do it as long as I can do it. But I don't even know if I want to be Prince. You know, I don't know if I want to do that. Like, I just want to, like, be able to buy a house with money from music. That'd be amazing. Let's do that. <laughs> like, you know, like, that's where my head is. I'm not thinking about, like, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm, I'm trying to, like, just make, like, survive <laughs> out here. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, it's interesting. And I don't know if I have this quote right, but I feel like Jimi Hendrix said something to the effect of, I don't like compliments because they're distracting. And when you think about the compliment that you're describing, you know, I'm sure as a kid growing up, when you started playing music, if someone said your name and Prince's together, you'd be like, okay, this is the greatest thing that could ever happen to me. Yes. And when you talk about how this came up and making music for yourself and, you know, it helps you connect to yourself, helps give you a sense of the world. And then all of a sudden you hear this thing. And it's again, if you know, one person does it, two people do it, but now magazines are all writing mm -hmm. things like that. You've got fans who are all of a sudden saying it. The entire world is sort of, you know, honing in on your vision and your music. And, you know, and what do you do with that? Especially if music has a central role in terms of your emotion regulation, understanding yourself, that's a very different need than saying, oh, I want to be the next prince or I'm going to keep, you know, helping people, you know, think of me as the next prince. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, and. It's interesting, like you said, man, like it's amazing. Like I'm I've always wanted this and in different stages throughout my entire life, you know. Um I like really eat, sleep and breathe this stuff. And so it is a little it's just it's my it blows your mind a little bit. You know, my every every day I'm I have to ground myself and, and just be like, you know, you can still just be yourself. You're enough. You don't got to be Prince, <laughs> you know, you know, you, you, you're good, you know, like that you're fine. You know, this is tough. And I can tell you, you know, some people assume that all or none thinking comes from a bad place, from a depressed place, from an anxious place, but sometimes it comes from a really good place. So if someone says to you, Hey, you could be the next Prince, that means the sky's the limit. But yeah, sometimes what people also think is that, you know, the floor goes really deep. And all of a sudden you could think, well, if I can get to these heights, I can wind up in these really bad lows. Like right. there's winners, there's losers, there's rock stars, there's people who aren't rock stars. Yeah. And all of a sudden, all this talk of success can really trigger thoughts or feelings of failure. And you and I talked a little bit beforehand about the hardcore punk scene. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I always appreciated about that world was trying to erase the boundaries between the musicians, the fans, you know, rock stars and the people who are in the audience and sort of have that everybody's kind of in this together. And I think that, you know, that can be something that can be very powerful for people to get rid of that all or none thinking and to feel more included and connected no matter, you know, where they are in the community. Yeah. You always hit that point on the, on the road, me and my friend were joking about it where it's like a week passes and then you hit a point where you're like, Oh, ever, is everyone mad at me? Like, it's, it's my family and my wife and 
everyone I care about mad that I'm doing this? <laughs> and, and would I do it anyways? Maybe. Maybe, yeah, I would. You know, it's it's a... You know, that's something I talk to my therapist about a lot, you know, just being like, nobody, nobody hates you. Like, it's okay. <laughs> you know? But it's it's hard because you're just, uh, you know, it feels kind of selfish, like going after something like this because, you know, you want it so bad. You wanted it for so long. And but, you know, there's other people in your life who feel it, too, it, it, who it impacts. And that's a whole yeah, other and that layer, layer you're you know, talking about, like, you know, a, it you know, often whole comes thing from the same place like does everyone hate you well where would that come from you know that would come from people really loving you and your absence would make them angry right you know again and who, who doesn't want to be loved like that and that may seem like it's great but it's a stressor yeah because if you're with people who love you who like your company and then you're not there well they may not be mad at you per se in the sense that you did something wrong they might just be missing you and getting mad because they miss you and all of a sudden you know they're kind of mad, but it's not really mad in the classic sense. And it's just another example of where something really good can all of a sudden lead to this all or none vibe, which can all of a sudden kind mm-hmm. of go bad. It's, it's really a trip. It's a trip. You know, it's, they don't tell you this, you know, when you, when you buy a guitar, when you're six, they should, they should be like, but just so you know, like <laughs> there should be a whole kit. Like people are going to love you. And they're going to miss you. And we just want you to know. Yeah. That. Like the better you get at this, <laughs> the more you're going to want to do it. And and the, that might make some people sad in a way. Yeah. Here's the kit in case people start comparing you to Prince. It's like a break glass in case uh, of emergency. Oh my God. That'd be amazing. And then it takes you on like a ghost of Christmas past kind of like Scrooge journey through like rock and roll. Time, you know, you just meet all of them. That'd be good. Is there a movie? Because I feel there's a movie coming. We can definitely talk about that afterwards. I feel like there's already a plot. I'm feeling it. There are characters. That's an amazing movie. I would watch. I would watch the, the mess out of that movie. I really loved. Um, so, actually, a movie that kind of is about that is Soul. You know that movie, the Disney movie. I mean, it's basically about a, a black guy, piano player, lives in New York. He's a substitute teacher, music teacher at a local public school, killing jazz musician. But he just never had his break, and like then he eventually gets it. But he dies on the way to the gig and he goes to like heaven, kind of like a type of heaven. And they start kind of showing him how people are made because he has this thing where he's like, I'm supposed to be a great jazz musician. And I didn't get that opportunity. But over the course of the movie, you learn like no one's supposed to be anything, you know, like there's no real destiny, you know, like the janitor that you pass on the side of the street it's just as much of a right to be a jazz musician as you do. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like you got to kind of let that thinking go. And um, it, it's a really beautiful movie, but it's basically about this guy kind of dealing with, you know, that whole, that whole vibe of wanting, you know, to ascend, but realizing it's not all that is cracked up to be kind of, it's interesting. It's, it's a perfect example of where negative thinking again comes from aspiration. Yeah. Cause it's that question on the one hand, if you don't aspire to anything, what gets you to move forward? But on the other hand, if you look a little too far ahead, it can really be damaging because then you start comparing yourself to a standard that you effectively invented that was kind of random. Yeah, totally, totally. It's, it's a fascinating movie. Highly recommend Soul. Watch. All right. Speaking from transitioning from fascinating movies, uh, we come to the part of the program where we talk about a song that helped you through 
mental health issues, a song that you turn to that helped you get through? One song um, that I love, and in a way, I don't know if it's necessarily about mental health, but it is about longing. And I've always internalized one, a beautiful thing about music, you know, you can kind of internalize it and it can mean a lot of things, you know. And um, it's a song called About Today by The National. Um, the lines, today you were far away and I didn't ask you why. Like that line always stuck out to me because um, I feel like there have been times in my life where I was just in a different world. Like I was very far away. And there were people who did ask me why, like who reached out and were like, are you good? Like, do you need anything? You know, and those people, you know, at a certain point in my life saved my life, you know, just them, their presence and their interest in me at all. Um, it's very easy when you grow up in a place where there's not a lot of people like you for people to just act like you don't exist at all. And that is like the, the the worst feeling in the world when you're already alone and and people are making you feel more like they're purposefully making you feel more alone and you see it, you know, and you're like, why would anyone treat me like a person, you know? And so when someone does, it can it can mean everything. And so that song always stuck out to me. And um, I love that song. I've covered that song like for years. Um, beautiful song. Yeah. And, you know, it's so interesting because. Feeling alone is probably one of the most common experiences we all have. And so when we feel alone and we actually feel disconnected from everyone, that's probably one of the times where we actually are in reality most connected to people. And a lot of times we learn that through music where we, we hear someone speaking to those issues. Yeah. And you know, maybe all of a sudden we realize there's tons of people who are experiencing that song or in a stadium or in a crowd and are having those exact same feelings. And honestly, it kind of goes back to something you said earlier about, like, you never want to say that you understand, you know, I was talking to someone recently, you know, they're a woman, I'm not a woman, you know, and, you know, they're going through stuff in their own life, and they're having a tough day. And I was like, look, like, I don't know what it's like to experience what you're experiencing. But I do know what it's like to feel alone. I do know what it's like to feel like no one understand what you're going through. And I do know, you know what I mean? It's like, there are a lot of ways that people are very much the same. And I think, and some of the toughest points of your life, that's when you see how similar we all are. And so, yeah, I definitely agree with you. Bartiz, thank you so much for coming on the show. And congratulations on everything that's happening with your career. I say that without necessarily having any pressure. Uh, but I really look forward to following your career. And I hope we get a chance to talk again. Thank you for having me. This was great. So there it is. Bartiz Strange talking about how he coped with invalidation. Now, there's so much to take away from the conversation with Bartiz. But one of the things I wanted to discuss was how we can be good allies and help others by validating rather than invalidating their experience on their mental health journey. So when we see that others are in pain, experiencing troubling thoughts or emotions, it is natural that we want to reassure the people in our lives that those anxiety-provoking or depressing perspectives are not true. And it can be so tempting to tell the people in our lives that their fears or sadness are somehow unfounded. I mean, who wants to believe that our worst fears or most disturbing thoughts are true? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could simply erase disturbing thoughts and moods? 
But simply dismissing people's experience doesn't generally achieve the goal of improving anxiety and depression. If we really want to help someone who is struggling with anxiety or depression, we first need to understand and validate their perspective before we help them cope with or change it. Let people know that they are not alone. We don't have to agree with people's negative self-talk or more catastrophic thoughts. But it's important that we let people know that at least we understand or are trying to understand. That validation not only makes them feel more connected to us, but also gives them a roadmap of how they might address the issues that cause the depression or anxiety. One thing that we can do is to tell a person we are trying to help that we want to hear their story. Why are they anxious or depressed? And before we start helping them with problem solving, make sure that we ask if they feel heard and validated. This allows people to stay connected to their own experience and connected to us as we try to understand rather than avoid or suppress the tougher parts of their mental health journey. Then we can ask them if they'd like us to help them find a solution. Somewhere down the road, their perspective may change in a way that makes them feel less anxious or depressed, but we can't strong-arm people into feeling better. We need to validate people's experience first, then potentially help get them to problem-solving in order to improve their mental health. I want to thank Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live for including me in this wonderful project. And thanks to Pete Wilson and the Rooks for letting us use their song, I Know. This season of Going There is brought to you by the fine folks at the Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson, who never stop working to create a future where disease is a thing of the past. If you are struggling with anxiety, depression, or addiction, and are looking for help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Helpline at 1-800-622-4357. If you're thinking about harming yourself and want to seek help, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You may also go to the Sound Mind Live and Consequence websites for more information. So be healthy, be safe, and be kind to yourself and others. See you next time at the Crossroads.